Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Have an opportunity to be together again to worship God is a privilege and blessing from Him. It's good to see each of you be back from our trip. As I mentioned earlier, it's also great to see Sister Joyce back home. We've missed her and glad that she's back among us. Others are away and we pray for their safe journeys and arrivals back. Others who will be traveling, we keep you in our prayers and thoughts for those things that are ahead as you travel. The passage that Brother Rick read for us says in Hebrews 3 and verse 1, consider Christ Jesus. We're going to consider Christ this morning and particularly consider Him in making the applications of our relation to Christ. The passage speaks of some of those and of course as he sets out in that chapter and as he does throughout the letter to the Hebrews, the writer is making a, a very clear contrast between Jesus Christ and Moses. And Moses was a servant in God's house, but Christ, as a son, built God's house, and we are that house. But we have a responsibility, as he says in verse 6, to hold fast the confidence and the boasting or the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Uh, that uh, our response to uh, is to be faithful and true uh, and enduring uh, as we hold our confession. Uh, this, the, as he goes on to say uh, in other places in this epistle, and in fact in verse 1, he connects our confession to Jesus Christ. So, so the thought that we want to begin with in making some application to our relation to Jesus is simply that our heart is to be close to God. Our heart is to be near God. Now, we sing such songs as, Nearer my God to Thee. It's a biblical concept, instruction. In Matthew the 15th chapter, verses 8 and 9, Jesus made a, a rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees of His day when He said, in quoting from Isaiah, he said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here are people who came before God with worship. They came before God with words out of their mouth, honoring Him. And yet in truth, he said that worship was vain. It did not honor God because they were teaching the commandments of men as if they were the doctrines of God. And so, immediately, we see that here were a people who considered themselves to be close to God, but their heart was far from God. And that is a clear warning to us, in fact, like it was in the days of Isaiah. Isaiah is quoted here, Isaiah 29.13, And their fear taught toward me is taught by the commandment of men. You see, Israel had already fallen into adapting and adopting paganism, idolatry as an aspect of their Jehovah worship. And their traditions and regulations surrounding God's law, then in the days of Isaiah and on into the days of Jesus, here are people who claimed a heart near God, but in fact, God said, no, your heart's far from me. It doesn't, your worship, 
of me does not derive from a fear of me, from the heart of reverence, but rather from the dictates of human commandments. Now, note, he didn't say your worship is vain because you're keeping my commandments. See, that's the, that's the trouble we get into sometimes and we hear very often is people begin to discount obeying God's, God's commandments because if you're obeying commandments, then your heart's not involved. No, that's not what he's saying. Our heart is to be involved in worshiping God, in, in obeying God. God commanded Israel to worship. God has commanded us to worship. So let us not be confused that by obeying commandments, we've somehow taken our heart out of the equation, but rather we are with fear and trembling to work out our own salvation. Philippians 2 and verse 12. For it is God who works in us. See, God works in the obedient life, a heart that fears Him, that does His commandments. But, but their heart was far from God, even though they thought it was near God. Because they were following their own dictates rather than the will of God. And so the question for us is, how close is our heart to God? How, how real is God to me? How real is Jesus to you this morning? That's what we want to talk about as we remind ourselves of who Jesus is and from this passage. Tyler certainly did that from Colossians, the first chapter. The preeminence of Christ over all things. Over this world, over unseen realms, over the church. All things He has the preeminence. But here in Hebrews 3, there are three things in these first three, uh, six verses that that describe Jesus and hopefully will help us to consider just how real Jesus is to us, how real He ought to be to us, how close our heart ought to be to Him in our daily lives, in the choices of life that we are making. It begins in, in this text by discussing Jesus as the Apostle of our confession. Now, the word confession here is that idea of a profession. It is an acknowledgement. It's not simply something that you know you do right before you're baptized, but rather it is the proclamation, the profession of our life. It is what our life is about. Um, so, so our profession, Jesus is the apostle of our confession or our, of that which we acknowledge, that which is in, the, the, in essence who we are. He's the apostle of it. He's the one who has been sent. The idea of an apostle is a delegate or a messenger, one who has been sent forth with orders to accomplish a task. You know, Jesus certainly had apostles, and more on that in just a moment. But you see, Jesus is identified as the apostle of our confession. So he says, consider the apostle of our confession. Consider Christ who has been sent from the Father. John 5 and 36 says that Jesus, Jesus acknowledging, I've been sent from the Father. And several times uh, we have that reference about Jesus. John 5, 36. In fact, I think we prayed about it this morning at the table. I have a greater witness, Jesus said, than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the works that Jesus did, the miracles that He worked, demonstrate, testify that the Father has sent Him. That God the Father sent Him to this world. Now that bears upon our profession. 
That bears upon the commitment that we we make in our life to serve in the house of God. Because we are convinced by the evidence provided that Jesus was sent by the Father. The miracles He did convince us, compel us to faith and to a profession of living a life following Him. In John the 7th chapter, 25-29, through some of them at Jerusalem said, Is this not He whom they seek to kill? But look, He speaks boldly and they say nothing to Him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know that this man, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. Now, they had been, they had, they, they said, well, we know he, he came, he's from Nazareth. Uh, we don't even know where the Christ comes from, they said, although prophets had told them, in fact, they, their teaching had been corrupted, but, Jesus cried out as He taught in the temple saying, You both know Me and you know where I am from. He's not talking about Bethlehem or Judea now. He's talking about something else. He says, I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true and you do not know, and whom you do not know. You don't know the One who sent Me, but He did send Me. You don't know God, the Father. Now brother, Jesus is not going to be... Real, a real relation in our life, our heart's not going to be close to Jesus if our heart's not close to the Father who sent Him. Amen. Now look what He goes on to say. He says, but I know Him. So if I want to know the Father, I need to know Jesus. For I am, for I am from Him and He sent me. There it is again. He's the Apostle. He sent me. Therefore they sought to take Him. No one, but no one laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They, they could not abide that simple teaching that I am from the Father and the miracles I do show that that's true. But verse 31 says, Many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do, do more signs than these which this man has done? So, so Jesus gave evidence given by the Father, sent by the Father, that He is from the Father, and our faith has to be in that if we're going to have the right kind of relation with Jesus. He was sent to speak the Word of God. John 3 and verse 34, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. So, so as an apostle, He had a message. He had a work and He had a message. That work uh, blended with that message showed the validity of that message and called people's attention to receive that message. He came to relieve sinners of the burden and bondage of sin. That's why God sent Him. That's why the Father sent Him. Look at Luke 4. Now, remember now, now we said that he, he, God sent Him whom... And this is John who said, He who God sent speaks the words of God. So now look at Luke 4. Jesus in Nazareth at the synagogue on a Sabbath day took the, the scroll, the book of the, of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted and recovery of sight, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable 
year of the Lord. Now, Jesus says today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says Isaiah 61 and verse 1 is fulfilled in me. Now, look at the emphasis of that, of that prophecy. God's anointed him. God has appointed him to preach, to proclaim liberty, to give sight, to free the bond, the oppressed, to proclaim, to preach. There's a message that cannot be separated from the work of Jesus. When people today talk about receiving Jesus, but turn right around and refuse His Word, they have not received Jesus. If we're going to receive Jesus, we have to receive His Word. If I'm going to have a relation with Jesus, it cannot be separated from His Word. And yet, so very often, that is the deceptive message offered us. The message is receive Jesus. And don't get bogged down in all those things about the Bible that nobody can agree on anyway. That is not... The Apostle of the Father did not come to the world with a message that was so confusing, so convoluted, so corrupting that man couldn't understand it and in faith live it. And if we want a relation with Jesus, we acknowledge that His words are the words of eternal life. John 12, He that rejects Me and receives not My sayings has one that judges Him. The word that I spoke will judge Him in the last day. And you see, the Apostle of Jesus was sent as a Savior to the world with a message of salvation. He was sent, 1 John 4.14. Again, this terminology of being sent is used. 1 John 4. And 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. So He sent Him as a preacher of good tidings, and He sent Him as a Savior of the world. So with a message and with a work, He came to die to prevent our death and to give us life. John 3, 12-17, as the serpent was lifted up on the standard in the days of Moses, so the Son of Man would be lifted up from the earth to draw all men to Himself. He would be the means of salvation from sin's death, deliverance, and preservation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent His Son. He gave Him as an offering that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God sent a Savior. Prompted from love, fulfilled in the death of Jesus as He willingly submitted to the Father's will. John 17 and verse 3, Jesus acknowledges this again when He said, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. We're going to have a relation with Jesus then. We must have a relation with, we must receive the benefit of His death to obtain life from Him We've got to acknowledge Him as Savior and respond to what He says is needed to be saved. We've got to repent and be baptized. We've got to believe, repent, and be baptized to be saved. We have to acknowledge and live in the, a life that professes that He's sent from above. Now, He sent His apostles into the world to teach us how to do that. John twenty twenty one. As the Father sent me, and so I send you, He told His apostles. So, Jesus, if we're going to have a relation with Jesus, 
we're going to have to receive His Word. And in receiving His Word, we're going to have to respond in a submissive, obedient faith to be saved from our past sins and to be preserved under the day of eternity. So how close is your heart to Jesus? How real is Jesus to you? How real is His Word in our lives? Do we, when we face decisions, do we consult the Word of God? Or are we guided by the truth? Does that, does that set our moral compass and restrain us from evil and persuade us and direct us in that which is good? Just how real is Jesus? Many people rely upon a feeling, an intuition that they want to define as the Spirit leading them or Jesus speaking to them. No. He sent as the Apostle with a, word, with a work as Savior and a Word to guide us to eternal life. Jesus is in that passage described as the High Priest of our confession. High Priest. Now that seems rather out of our normal context of understanding. We're not Jews who grew up with the Law of Moses that had a high priest and the temple, the holy place and the most holy place. They offered animal sacrifices and meal offerings and drink offerings and feast days. All of that seems and sounds rather foreign to us. We, we read through the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus and you, what happens? You start, you, your eyes start glazing over. Right? Well, let's remove the glaze a little bit and realize that in Leviticus and Numbers, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, there, 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 is, there is there and, and so much more. The shadows of what we have with Jesus now. He is the high priest of our confession. Now, the high priest was appointed in the law of Moses, appointed from among men, to offer gifts and sacrifices for himself and for the people. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, this is explained, beginning in verse 1. Every high priest, that was Aaron and his sons, were, and his descendants were high priests. Aaron was chosen by God, taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse verse four goes on or three goes on to describe this. Well, uh, and we'll come back to two. Because of this, he is required. That is, the high priest is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. God called Aaron. God anointed Aaron. Set Aaron in the place of high priest. And Aaron would go, would among other duties, once a year go into the most holy place and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as on the day of atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And he would do that every year, as the law described, detailed. Well, now that was for men. That was under the law of Moses. But now he says, the Son of God is the high priest of our confession. And, and so in chapter 3 of Hebrews, in verse 2, it says, He was faithful to Him who appointed Him. As Moses was faithful in all His house, God appointed Jesus to be high priest. And this is 
This is a theme that runs through the book of Hebrews. And you see the many verses there from the book of Hebrews. We're not going to read all of them, but I do want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 5 because he makes the comparison. Here's Moses, I'm sorry, here's Aaron. And now, here's Christ, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but as He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, also said in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 and verse 4. God would anoint His Son, would anoint the Son of God as high priest. And as high priest... He would offer sacrifices for us. In fact, a sacrifice for for us. And that sacrifice He would offer for us would be Himself. In chapter uh, 5 and verse 10, there's again that point that God called Him to be high priest. In chapter 7 then, we'll just note here in 20 and 21, uh, well, actually, uh, further on, let's go over to chapter 9. Uh, and let's begin reading in 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copy of the things in heaven should be purified by these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the sacrifice that Jesus would offer would be a better, more, more uh, complete, a complete sacrifice, one that, that uh, surpassed the copies found in the law of Moses. For Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands. He, that's what Aaron did. That's what the high priest of the law of Moses did. He entered into a tabernacle and then a temple that men constructed. But Christ into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that He should offer Himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, that is, blood of the Lamb, but he who would have, for then he would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Aaron would daily, I mean, I'm sorry, yearly go into the most holy place. And of course, there were daily sacrifices in addition to that. But the high priest, once a year, he would, he would do that. He said, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus went to heaven. The holy place, most holy place of the tabernacle was a representation of heaven and the presence of God and His mercy that He would give to the people. But now Jesus offers Himself in heaven itself for our sins. Once for all. One sacrifice. Once at the end of the ages He appeared to make a sacrifice to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He's the high priest who makes the sacrifice and He is Himself the sacrifice for our sins. Now, even the Old Testament high priest, like Aaron, was to serve with compassion. You see, back in chapter 5 and verse 2, He, that is the high priest appointed for men, among men and from men, could have compassion on those who were ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. So Aaron offered sacrifices for himself and the people because like the people, he was a sinner too. He needed to show compassion. And his service was a demonstration of divine compassion. 
God's compassion for us, for sinners. But the Son of God didn't sin. But He was tempted like we are. He knows the, the tr- struggles and trials of that. He is in all things made like us, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 2 and 17. We need a high priest because we need the mercy of God. If Jesus is not high priest, we have no no one to take a sufficient sacrifice to the presence of God on our behalf. We're not going to be saved. We're going to be lost. But you see, Jesus has accomplished that and He's done that in mercy and dutiful faithfulness so that when we are tempted, Hebrews 4, 14-16 says, our, our need to hold fast our confession is anchored by the fact that when we are tempted, we have a high priest who can be touched with our weaknesses. Because he was tempted like we are, although he didn't sin. But, we, but that compels us and gives us boldness to come to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Why? Because, see, Jesus presented His blood before the mercy seat of God, heaven, where God is, who extends mercy to those whose blood is applied through the Gospel of the Son. So we have a linkage now of why He sent Him as an apostle and why He sent Him as a high priest. Because you see, the Gospel, that Word that He preached, teaches us what He has accomplished for our redemption as high priest. And compels us now to approach God for mercy, for forgiveness, for strength, for for the, the, the help we need when tempted with sin, when overwhelmed by sin. It's our high priest who provides us the access to the mercy of God. So again, we ask, how near is Jesus to you, how real is Jesus to you? He ought to be as real as the forgiveness that you have. He ought to be as real as the prayer you pray to forget for forgiveness. You see, if it wasn't for Jesus, that prayer would be of no avail. It's His sacrifice and offering Himself as high priest on our behalf that makes those prayers valid. That bring gives us confidence when we pray. So. He is the high priest of our confession, or that our acknowledgement, our profession. Without Him, our life as Christians would be vain. We need the high priest. And let it be noted, every one of us, Christians, we are priests serving in the house of God. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as living stones, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. So you see, when we talk about sacrificing for God, then we need to do that within the context of truth. What is the right sacrifice for God? Am I just offering something that I think God will accept? Or am I offering in a way that He approves? You see, our high priest makes our access to God possible. Without it, And without that work, without Him, we would have no mercy. We would have nothing but the expectation of eternal judgment for our sin. Condemnation. 
But let's go to the third description of Jesus and our relation to Him. And that is, it says that He is the Son over God's house. There in verses 2 through 6 of Hebrews 3. As again, He notes, Christ was faithful to the one who appointed Him as apostle and high priest. Moses was was a faithful servant of God. But He says, he is worthy of more, more glory than Moses. Because he who built the house has more honor than the house. You see, Moses really was a servant in the house of God. But we, God's people, saved through the blood of the Lamb, we are the house of God. Verse 6, in Christ as a son. So... It, Yes, He came as a servant, but He is a Son over God's house. Whose house we are, if we hold fast. Confidence and rejoicing of our hope to the end. So, so in this te- text, it tells us that Christians are brethren of Jesus. We have a relation with Christ, a, f- a family relation. We are brothers and sisters, brethren of Jesus. You know, there are... Several designations in Scripture about being brethren to Jesus. He had brothers in the flesh. Mary and Joseph had children. He had brothers. John 7 speaks of that in other places, identifies them. The Scriptures also describe that all men are His brethren. After all, He came in the flesh. We're all brethren of one God. We all came from Adam. So, we're all sons of God in in the creative work of God in in the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh. Luke, the third chapter, identifies His fleshly genealogy. So in that sense, everybody is a brother of Christ. But the, the apostles were called His brethren. And Christians are called His brethren. Now, this is the fact that in Hebrews 2, the idea that we are the brethren of Christ, Christians, those who compose the house of God are His brethren, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 11, because we are all of one Father. Now he's speaking specifically of the relation we have of salvation, of redemption, as the children of God. He says in Hebrews 2.11, for both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. That is, Christ and us, Christians, we're all of one, as of one Father. For which reason He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And He quotes then Psalm 22 and 22. He says, I will declare Your name to My brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to You. This is, the, this is David saying this, figuring the Messiah, the Christ, who would praise God in the assembly of His brethren. That's you and me. Jesus said, I will not take of this cup until I take it with you new in my Father's kingdom. We have fellowship with Jesus. Commune with Him as the children of God. God is our Father. Of course, Jesus was made like us in the flesh. And so... so he shared in flesh and blood, and that goes to the, the broader point of all men. But you see, it's the Christians who obtain the mercy and, uh, from the faithful high priest because they profess a life of following Him. 
following the word that he sent from through the apostle of, of our confession, Jesus, and received the benefit of the high priest's work that now we serve in the house of God in this relationship with Jesus. Jesus said on one occasion, those who do the Father's will are my mother and brother and sister. Matthew 12, 46-50. So Jesus focused upon the spiritual relationship of the Heavenly Father and those who do the Father's will as being His brethren. And so, if Jesus, if we have relation with Jesus as our brother over us, then we're going to be doing the will of the Father. See, if I'm not doing the will of the Father, then I have, I have no basis to justly and rightly refer to Jesus as my brother in the faith. I'm, I, I'm not in that relationship. I'm not, I'm not holding fast the confidence that we have unto the end. So, we're partakers of Christ. So we're, we are, we are bre- brethren of Christ and we are partakers of Christ, the text tells us. If you drop on down to verse 14, it says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, to be a partaker, and the word partaker here is a word in other places that's the idea of a partner. It's the idea of fellowship or companionship. In Hebrew, or Luke 5 and verse 7, uh, the reference is made there to Peter's partners in fishing, James and John. And it uses the same word that's used here. Uh, uh, and, uh, 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 and that is the idea of uh, fellowship. In fact, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, in verse 9, it is used as well. You've loved righteousness, hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The word is, means companion. We are companions with God, with Christ, partners with Him, fellows, as we are brethren in the house of God. So, how near is my heart to Jesus? How real is Jesus to me? He's to be a partner in my life. He's a companion with you in your life. Because, you see, in the church, as Christians, we're friends of Christ. Brethren, partners or partakers, and friends of Christ. John 15 and verse 14. Jesus said to His apostles, you are my friends if you do what I command. If you keep my commandments. When we obey Jesus, when we follow the instruction that He sent by His apostles into the world, which is the Word that the Father sent Him to bring to the world, then... When we follow it, we're we're friends of Jesus. We're companions with Him. We partake. And and, and so our life is to be lived not separate from Christ, not occasionally with Christ, not, not on Sundays only with Christ, but always with Christ. We are brethren. We are partakers of Christ. We are His friends as we follow 
His commandments, His Word. Now, we read the text a moment ago, Jesus is not ashamed to call us His brethren. Now imagine that. We're the ones, by our sin, this, we are why Jesus died. We are the ones why Jesus endured wretched treatment, agony and pain. We are the ones that He left the glory of heaven for to live among men and then to suffer the humiliation of the, of the cross. But we're also the ones for whom He was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God and now is exalted and preeminent over all things. And we're the ones. And now, He's not ashamed to call us His brethren right? because we have responded to the call of His Gospel to believe and obey it and live this profession. He is our apostle. He is God's apostle, I should say, for of our confession. He is the high priest appointed by God. He is the Son who's over the house of God. And still, He's not ashamed to call us His brethren. Even though we were His enemies in sin. He saved us. He blessed us so richly. The question then becomes, will I be ashamed of Him? You see, he, he, Jesus taught, whoever is ashamed of Me uh, and of My words, He's ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when He comes in glory, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So, Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. We must not be ashamed to be called after His name. To wear His name. To live His name. So how real is Jesus to us? How, how near is our heart to Him? You see, this is the, 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 the overriding question of the hour. Is, am I ashamed of His testimony? Am I ashamed of what the Bible says about the one true church? About how to be saved? About the worship of the church? The work of the church? The pattern of sound words? Am I ashamed of that? That is, do I rebel against it? Do I push against it? Do I ch try to, to change and adapt myself uh, or the Scriptures to myself? How real is Jesus to us? You see, it gets down to how real is truth to us? His Word. How real is what He's done as High Priest to us? How real is the house of God over which He is the Son? How real is that in our life? Paul told Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, or of me His prisoner. For me, it's prisoner. Paul was a prisoner for the Gospel. He told Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God to save. He said, don't be ashamed of suffering with Christ. Paul said, I know whom I've... He says, for this reason I suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. I accept gladly, he said, the, the, the suffering to be identified with Jesus. And so how real is Jesus? Are we willing to suffer as a Christian? To be put to shame by men, but not ashamed of our Lord? You see, to be a partaker of Christ, to partake of Christ, the text says, and this is where we close this morning, is... To be to be to partake of Christ, we have to 
Hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope we have firm to the end. Hold it steadfast. That is, we continue to rely upon the message that, that God's Apostle, the Christ, brought to the world. That's our point of faith. That's our point of action. We continue to honor the high priest that we have who makes access to the, God's mercy possible. And so we pray fervently. We worship ardently. We don't bring lip service in worship. We bring our heart in expressing ourselves in the worship God has ordered for us, has arranged for us. And we honor the fact that Jesus is head over God's house. The church is not, doesn't belong to us. It's God's house. We are members of it. And so we submit ourselves to His direction in His Holy Word. How close are you to Jesus? How near is He? You know, is he, how real is He? Where's our heart? Every day. Well, I hope that we've been able to assess that somewhat this morning from this text. Realize that what Jesus has accomplished brings is where we put our heart. We put our trust, our faith, in the Word and work He's accomplished having been sent from the Father. We put our heart in the benefit of the sacrifice that as our High Priest He's offered Himself for us in the presence of God. And we put our heart in respecting and honoring the fact that Jesus is our brother, our companion, our friend. If we will but trust Him, follow His Word in our lives. If we can help you do that by becoming a Christian, we urge you to do that right now. Or if there's sin in your life, we urge you to repent of that. We'll pray together about that to our Father. He will hear our prayers because you see, Jesus has made that access possible. And so we can confidently approach God for His mercy and He will forgive us as we seek to do His will. Won't you come while we stand and we sing?